Hi, this is Oliver Wakeman, and you're listening to Michael's Record Collection. Hello, and welcome to Michael's Record Collection, episode number 55. Sorry about missing last week, folks. I had some things that moved around on me in terms of uh, interviews that were a little hard to pin down, and uh, so we ended up taking the week off, but we're back, and I hope you enjoyed your week off from Michael's Record Collection. I hope you uh, have found me on social media. If you haven't, you can find me on Twitter, at Mike's Records, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. All right, let's get to this week's show. I talked to Oliver Wakeman, son of Rick Wakeman and brother of Adam Wakeman. Uh, Oliver comes from, of course, a very famous keyboard-playing family. And I spoke with Oliver about a brand-new compilation uh, that he's got coming out, a box set called Collaborations. And, of course, it is a three-disc set of collaborations with some pretty darn good guitarists. He has an album with Steve Howe in there. He's got an album with Gordon Giltrap in there. And the third disc is a live album with Gordon Giltrap and vocalist Paul Manzi. Very good stuff, very entertaining stuff, and uh, two of these are reissues. The Three Ages of Magic album is the one with Steve Howe, and Ravens and Lullabies is the one he did with Gordon Giltrap. These have been reissued with bonus tracks, and uh, not just not just demos and things like that, but I'll, I'll let Oliver explain that in today's show. And uh, we also talked about him coming from a very famous family and what it was like uh, to have that Wakeman name, uh, his time in Yes and the Straubs, uh, growing up, but what he was listening to as a kid, and all kinds of stuff. So let's get to that interview without any further ado. Here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Michael's Record Collection. I'm very excited to have with me today keyboard wizard Oliver Wakeman. Oliver, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's a pleasure. Nice to be here. So you have a new box set coming out April 11th called Collaborations. This is a, uh, a three-disc set, and uh, it includes uh, an album you did with Steve Howe, an album you did with Gordon Giltrap, and a, a bonus disc of live material with Gordon uh, and Paul Manzi. Um, just tell me about this box set. Why was this the right time for it? And, um, you know, what uh, what went into this uh, tremendous set? It, I don't have a physical copy, but it's it's got 16-page booklets for each CD and uh, bonus tracks and just the whole great artwork and stuff. So just tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, it's... Uh... I'll I'll try and not give quite as long answers as I generally do because I tend what I tend to do is I tend to ramble on for ages and answer about twelve of your questions in one sentence. So I'll try and um, <laughs> condense it a little. But essentially, what happened was in back in 2019, uh, I worked with the Yes Management and put out the box set, which was from a page, which featured the tracks that I worked on and wrote with Yes uh, in my tenure back in 2008 to 2011. I think it was. Um, and that box set came out and was was really well received. Uh, and so the the Yes Management, who are also representing me, you know, came up and said, "Yeah, have you got anything else that we think could make a a nice box set?" And uh, and I had um, a couple of albums I'd worked on with Clive Nolan. Um, uh, we did a Jab Walkie and the Hound mm-hmm. albums, and we put together a third disc based on music for the third record that we we never got to finish. Um, and we put that box set out, box set out, and that went down very well. And the management came to me again and said, um, anything else? 
and I sort of, <laughs> in my head, I sort of was trying to compartmentalize my my music career, really. Um, and like a lot of people, when I get interested in an artist and you try and understand their um, catalogue, sometimes it can be quite confusing when there's been re-releases, things come out, they have different titles, they appear all over the place. And you're like, what actually is the, the, the not the historical order, but the sort of order of how these things were worked on? And so I sort of thought, well, okay. So I looked at all the records that I still had available or not available that were sort of out of print, but and tried to see a pattern. Where, where, where did my work work? You know, there was the music I did with Yes, there was the collections of work that I did with 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 um, Clive, and then I sort of thought, well, I've been really fortunate to work with some amazing guitarists. You know, both Gordon Giltrap and Steve Howe, and Peter Banks had played on the Jabberwocky album, and I played with Trevor Rabin in America. I sort of thought. Maybe there's a, an album of guitarists. And I sort of thought, well, actually, it's not just the fact that they were guitarists. It wasn't just the fact that they came on and played some guitar on one of my records. It was the fact that we collaborated together to build something using shared experiences, knowledge, arrangement ideas, lyrical ideas, everything. And I sort of thought, well, that's a really nice idea for a box set. So I pitched it to them and they said, great. And they said, but, you know, when we've done the other box sets, we've always had an extra disc or something that makes it unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the boxes I've tried to put art prints, really detailed booklets, because I come from a an era of where booklets and vinyl and records were interesting. You know, you like the whole tangible feel of a product. Sure. Um, and so box sets are really important to me. Things that make people, you know, it's it's like an event almost, an experience. When you get the record, you put it on, you read the memories, you read all the information, who was the engineer, blah blah, all the all the stuff that we all love doing. Yeah. Um, and then the record company said to me, he said, well, have you got anything else that we could put in there? Have you got another record you did with the guitarists? And I said, not really. I've got some other bits and pieces, but nothing that really has the same stature as the albums that I did with Steve and, and with, uh, with Gordon. Uh, um, but then I started thinking, well, when I did the album with Gordon, we did a bonus disc. The original time it came out, it was a two CD bonus disc. Uh, I had a few live tracks on and a couple of extra studio tracks. And I was thinking, well, maybe there's a way that I can do something with that again. But then that seems a bit just to re-release the two CDs felt a little bit short-changed to anybody that already had these. Yeah. And so I thought, well, how can I do it a different way? And then I got a um, an email through uh, from a sound engineer friend of mine who had actually come along and actually recorded one of the shows. And we had no idea he'd recorded it because Gordon and I went out and we toured as a duo. Mm-hmm. We did a couple of shows with Paul Manzi as a trio. And we did the full band show. And it was it was a Christmas show we did. We got together and Paul came along and we learned, you know, it, we learned some of the songs, you know, the day before and at soundcheck and, and played some pieces that neither none of us had all played together before and put together this sort of bespoke show. And by chance, it was recorded. And he said, do you want the files? And I was like, yes, please. <clears throat> and so so what I did is I put the, the studio tracks that came from the bonus disc onto the main record as bonus tracks. And then we created this whole new live album, um, which was lovely. It was, it was, the thing about live records is that the live, live shows is it, it's an event. You're there, you feed off the audience and then it sort of dissipates into, into time. And so when I listened back to this thing, it was lovely. I was just, I, I was like, um, I was like somebody in the audience listening to this recording, which I didn't know existed. And I thought, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be a great record.
happened. I was talking to Carl Groom, who's the uh, the engineer that mixes all my records, and he he was sort of saying, "We're going to have to cut some of these stories out." He said, "Oh, this is going to be the <laughs> longest live album ever," because Gordon and I do tend to do that on stage. We do tend to chat quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but that's really where the, the 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 records came from, and it just felt like it was the right time to do that next. You know, we've done the Yes stuff, we've done the Clive opera stuff. And then it was like, okay, the albums that I worked with, with, you know, legendary musicians that have a real history and really brought something different to the musical world in the, in the seventies and the eighties. And, and so it just seemed, it seemed right. And I think even though Ravens and Lullabies, which is the record I did with Gordon and the three ages of magic that I did with Steve Howe are completely different records. They are, they couldn't be further apart as, a, you know, one's a, a rock album with this rock band and singing but very proggy and the other is more symphonic rock instrumental keyboard based like the 70s solo album sort of thing yeah they they fit together really well it just seems it seems very strange but it, it's 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 a nice collection of, of sort of a musical journey really yeah so i want to circle back to some specific questions about the box set in a bit but i want to kind of uh set the table a little bit first of all let me ask you where are you speaking to me from today uh, this is my little writing room, uh, and I live in uh, just north of Cheltenham in England. So uh, any of your listeners are aware of, of um, the UK. You sort of come out of London, drive for a couple of hours, and then you get towards Cheltenham and Gloucester, which is not quite as far as Wales, but sort of Bristol, up up from Bristol, that sort mm -hmm. of way. So very nice area, very um, lots of horses, hence the name Cheltenham, which is where <laughs> the name comes from. So yeah, so yeah, so it's a very nice part of the world. It looks like you're having a nice day. I've seen some folks walking by your window there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone just it, it's, it's 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 one of the warmest days we've had this year. We're up to a, a sort of balmy 18 degrees, I think, outside, and everybody's yeah. In Britain, that's a huge thing. It's like yeah. it's March and there's sunshine and it's hot, so everybody starts putting on shorts and short t-shirts and going outside for about 10 minutes and realizing that actually it's not as warm as they thought it was. <laughs> so I want to ask you, what is your, your earliest recollection of being exposed to music? Because obviously you have a, a famous father, Rick, and I think there's maybe a, a sort of a, it, it may be completely wrong, but I think that a lot of people probably have in their mind uh, a picture of you and your brother, Adam, sort of at your father's knee while he's playing piano kind of thing. But I really want, I want the real story. Like what was your, your first exposure to it? Was it your dad? Probably not actually dad left, dad left home when I was five. Um, so and my brother was only three when, when he left and we, we had a, a house, a very nice house and it had a grand piano in it. And I always remember, I can distinctly remember this. I, I must have been about four or so. And I remember walking into the lounge and walking up to the grand piano and putting my fingers just on the keys. And somehow I hit a chord and it sounded great. And I remember thinking, oh, that's good. And then this is easy. <laughs> and then tried to do it again. And of course, the next time it sounded dreadful. And so I ended up thinking, oh, I'm, I'd like to do this. I'd like to learn how to do this properly. So then I ended up going to music lessons and I just I can distinctly remember being five or six and having to miss play time because all my friends went out to play and I had to sit in the room and they would put stars on my fingers and I would have to do the exercises at, at the piano and I can I can remember that so clearly I can remember the feeling of 
I'm missing doing something I want to do to do something else I want to do. And it was that, I think it was quite a young age to have that realization that you can't do everything at the same. Sometimes you have to give something up to do something else, which is what a lot of musicians do. You know, we give up a lot of our, a lot of time that we could spend doing other things. Yeah. We give up to sit and practice and to write. And, you know, it's not always, you know, music isn't a guaranteed reward. The reward is coming up with a piece of music that you like. That's, you know, my son always says to me, why did you write that piece of music? I said, because I wanted to hear it because nobody else had written it. That's the reward for me. It's not about, you know, money or anything like that. I mean, we all would like, everybody would like more money, obviously, but that's not the driving force for a musician. It's about the creation of the, of the art. So I remember as a child, you know, thinking that specifically. And then as I got older, I sort of did the usual thing that kids do. You start listening to charts, records, things like that. But I think I did what a lot of people do, which was that that sort of thing in my teens where I sort of really discovered music. I really discovered the love of music and the variety of musicianship that was out there. And I, th I think that's really probably where I get my real deep love from it. And then, of course, I discovered more about dad. But the thing that I was trying to explain when people asked me about that is, you know, we never played together mm -hmm. ever until I was about probably about 35 was the first time we ever played on stage together. And we've only ever played together four times, five times, because we'd rather talk about something else. I'm not really very keen on just being there and playing with dad. It was always, I wanted to do my thing. I wanted to have built up some reputation of my own before I ended up walking on a stage with somebody with a stature of dad. You know, I wanted to know that some people would go, what's he done? Oh, he's done quite a lot. Oh, okay. Yes. You're, you're sort of, a, you, you almost, you almost validify your reason for being on a stage. Mm -hmm. And that was sure. important to me. But as I got older, I realized, you know, how much he'd done. But when I was growing up in the eighties, when I was, I was born 72. So, you know, about 82, 83, I was about 10, just starting to understand more about music. You know, in the eighties, it really wasn't, or mid eighties, it really wasn't a great time for a lot of musicians. I know Yes had big hit album and Asia were around, but there were also a lot of other sort of classic rock musicians that were trying to find a path and they had their core audience that went with them. But there wasn't the nostalgia uh, tours around at that time. So musicians were, you know, having a tougher time as, as other bands were coming out. So it wasn't a case that, you know, dad was always around on tour or doing this or that. He was always very playing very select places and his audience that, you know, you go along to a show and you'd recognize a lot of the people. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, you know, when all the nostalgia stuff kicked in and ABWH came along when I was about 16, 17, then you sort of saw the explosion of that start of that whole, whole um, regular touring thing again. So it probably isn't anything like anybody imagines. I imagine most people think that we all sit around the piano playing 100 <laughs> Christmas carols every year yeah. and, you know, sit there and, and trade licks. It really doesn't work like that. You know, we just we just don't. It's We get together. Whenever we do a show together, like I said, which is quite rare, it's generally a rehearsal in the afternoon of which we spend most of the time trying to work out what jokes we're going to tell on stage. And then <laughs> <laughs> before you know it, it's gone. And we think, oh, we'll do another one of those in about four years. And that's yeah. how it happens. Well, I'm glad I asked because, you know, when, when I think about it, or when I sat down to think about it, I thought, how would Oliver and Adam have come at this when, you know, Rick was on the, on tour so much, when, uh, you know, when they were little and, and that kind of thing. And, and so I'm glad I asked you about it. Now, it sounds like you started your training a few years before Adam, or was it more simultaneous? 
I don't really know. I, to be honest with you, we sort of, we probably, he probably started a few years later, but then I sort of stopped and started and then I started to learn guitar. And then later on he started to learn guitar and um, we sort of both, we moved down to the Southwest of England and we both joined bands and, and I, I always sort of actually maintain that a lot of my training, even though there was a lot of formal training, a lot of my main training came from working in, in blues bands and house bands. And the one bit of advice dad has always given me, which his dad gave to him, which was just play with anyone anywhere as often as you can. It's the world's you know, music is the world's longest apprenticeship and you never know everything. So just take the opportunities. So I did that. And, and one of the things that I was always really lucky about was I always ended up playing with people that were older than me which means as opposed to maybe say a, a more conventional job or career where you're the youngest person in the room, people tend to, you know, you're, you're not given too much responsibility, you're helped along, blah, blah. When you're in a band, you don't have that responsibility. You, you don't have that luxury. People aren't going to say to you, well, I tell you what, you just keep yourself nice and easy there. You keep yourself comfortable and we'll, we'll take all the heavy. People don't do that. You're in a band, you do your share. And so I had to learn quite quickly. And, you know, you learn all the tricks of being on stage, like, I learned how to watch, you know, guitarists, how they played on the on the neck, where their fingers were going. Where was the bass player playing? Where was he rooting to? Okay, how was the chords changing? You know, when you jump up in a jam band and you don't know the piece of music, you can't just guess. You have to use all the, the clues that are there in the music. And, and that taught me just as much about music than sitting with a piano teacher saying to me, right, we're now going to work through this classical piece. And I think that's that's massively important. And with music, that with my brother and I, and any musician, to be honest, I think you get to, I always think of music like a tree. We all learn at the trunk where everybody has all the same groundings. And as you get further up, you, you branch out into different areas that your experience and music you listen to, the people you like doing, the way you sort of play. Mm -hmm. And then you end up at a branch somewhere over here. And somebody that you've maybe worked quite close with ends up at a branch over here. And providing you've done enough of the training to get yourself past a level of competence, then you're just creating your own, your own sort of style and your own way of working. And, and I think that's really interesting because, you know, I used to work with a lot of musicians. Oh, he's better than him. He does. He's great. And it's like everyone just has different journeys. Everyone just picks up different experiences and we all magpie from each other and we all learn from each other. And we're all going, how did he come up with that? And, you, you know, we're all fascinated. And that's why I think the, the phrase, you know, the world's longest apprenticeship is that there's so much to learn and there isn't enough time to learn it all. And I still sit down here and I think I'm looking at, you know, <laughs> there aren't many keys here. And in an octave, there's even less. And, and yet somehow we create all this stuff just from pressing these keys in a slightly different way. It's fascinating. It just, you know, it's still amazes me now. And I've been doing this for years. Things just seem quite, quite strange With the memory of your walk And how we were And how we were meant to be It was a future I couldn't see She sits and downs another the memories fade away She doesn't know what happened here We were lovers yesterday 
do you remember what your first favorite record was? My first favorite record? Um, it's probably some dreadful single from the 80s when I bought as a child. Um, <laughs> although, to be fair, I, I, you know, there's a lot of pop artists that you grow and you learn as a, as a child. Um, but I do remember the first record I really, really listened to over and over again. And my mum got me a record player. And I had a record player in my um, my bedroom. She came this record player and she said, oh, I think there's a load of old records in the loft that were your dad's. And so I ended up getting this little collection of records. And she gave me two or three different records. And one of them was Tales from Topographic Oceans. One of them, I think, was Six Wives. And I enjoyed Six Wives a lot. Um, but the one record that I just played over and over again was The Grand Illusion by Styx, which was another one of the ones. And I loved that record. And I listened to it over and over and over and over. And that was the first record <clears throat> that wasn't sort of connected to the family that I sort of went, wow, that's really something. And then, and I must have only been about 11 or 12. And I, I loved that. And it's still one of my favorite records to this day. And it just made me then want to discover more about this, this world of music and this mm -hmm. era of music. And, um, and so I, and I always remember my first CD I ever bought was Rush, Hold Your Fire, um, followed by Deep Purple's Perfect Strangers. They were my first two CDs as mm -hmm. well. And yeah, and I, I did, then it was just a voyage of discoveries. Like, what can I buy next? What can I see? What, you just go to car boot sales. I remember buying Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield from a car boot sale. And it was filthy. And I could put it in the bath and I cleaned it with an earbud, you know, and you know, I'm, I'm I'm still a music fan like everybody else. I still have my, my love of the records and my, my vinyl and, and things like that. Uh, yeah. and I, I can always, always remember as well, going to record shops with my friends and they would walk up to the counter and they'd buy the latest, I don't know, AHA record or Duran Duran. And I remember picking up 2112 by Rush and they, they looked at it and went, what is that? I went, <laughs> looks brilliant i'm buying this and and so i bought it took it home and thought this is the most amazing record ever i loved it still love it to this day and then the next time i went with them i'd buy something more outlandish again just to get a rise out of them as they were picking they just said why can't you just buy duran duran it's like nah i'm interested and i think the time <laughs> that they stopped they stopped asking me to go with them was when i picked up the flying teapot by gong and then, then they just turned at that point and just said, you're not coming anymore. <laughs> we, can't, we can't be seen with you in public anymore. That's, that's great. It's those first few albums that you mentioned that you bought are fantastic keyboard albums also. So um, yeah, I'm sure yeah. that that helped uh, cement your love of the instrument. But uh, was there ever a time when you said, I'm going to try bass or I'm going to try guitar or I'm going to see what else I can do? Yeah, um, well, I actually, you know, there are there are a few sort of hidden over in the corner down there. There's a little collection of guitars yeah. over there, which is, uh, but I'm, I'm a, I'm a, how can I, I'm a good guitarist, but I'm not a, it, I, I don't play guitar like I play keyboards. Keyboard is, is a natural feel for me. I feel, I, you know, what I could say is I feel connected to the instrument when I play. It, it feels right. It feels right. And guitar I wanted to learn guitar and bass um, more as a writing tool because I didn't want to be the sort of writer that only ever wrote stuff just at a piano or just at a keyboard with some synths. That, that, that felt, I felt like I was limiting myself. And a lot of the music that I loved growing up, and my mum used to listen to bands like, um, or artists like Don McLean, 
John Denver, Cat Stevens. And I had a huge love of acoustic guitars and guitar-based music. And the way that that music can hit a different emotion or convey a different type of song than a piano can. You can do a piano version of an acoustic guitar song, but there's something about that writing. And I, and I remember thinking to myself, okay, what is it special about this? And I, I can't remember if it was my dad or somebody else once said to me, it said that a song is, you know, it's a really good song if you can strip it back to the piano and the voice or a guitar and the voice. And I thought that's really important to me. So I decided to do all my songwriting back to, to the basics and I would start writing with that. And if I could get it strong in that format, then I knew whatever I built on top of it was going to enhance the song or enhance the melody or make it better or add different just textures and emotions. And so that's, so that was really the drive to learn the other instruments. It wasn't that desire to stand up on stage and crank out a guitar solo. It was, it was more of a, um, how can I, in, how can I get better at what I do and how can I expand my ability to write music? And so that's where the love of the guitars and, and bass came from. Uh, I play a little bit of drums. Um, I played a harp once. I remember <laughs> winding the harpist up quite a lot because essentially it's like a piano on its side. So I just changed the theory in my head and went, okay, well, that's first, thirds, fifths. That must be there. So if I do that with this hand here, and then I do this here with this hand, I will make a sound. And I did this thing on her harp. And she just looked at me and she went, how did you do that? And she got really quite angry. And I said, well, it's just the theory of the instrument. If you, you know, if you, if you have the dexterity of the stringed instrument, you understand what it's doing, providing you put that theory into place on that instrument, you could make it do something. I just remember getting a bit stroppy about that. It was quite funny. <laughs> do you own a, a um, uh, an accordion? No, I don't. No, I don't. No, I, uh, no, I don't. I must get one actually. I said, that, that's always, a, I've never played one. I'd like to actually go at that. Cause that must be, yeah. I've, Dennis DeYoung did that, didn't he? He could play accordion. Yeah, yeah. yeah he can, he, I think he grew up learning accordion and yeah. then he, he branched out from there. Yeah. Um, so I know you and your brother and your dad haven't uh, been on a stage a lot together. Um, has there ever been a lunch or or just a, a going out for a pint where you three have said, let's just form a trio and take over the world on keyboards? No, no, never has actually. We did... Um, <laughs> We did one show, which was really nice, which was in um, not too far from where I live now, actually. It was in a lovely old building called Blackfriars, which is like a, an old church, ecclesiastical building in the middle of Gloucester. Uh, and Gloucester is quite a built up sort of city town now and lots and lots of buildings that were built in the sort of 60s and 70s. So what people might describe as quite soulless in places where there's a lot of concrete based buildings. And right hidden in the middle is this, this wonderful old building that is, if you stand at a certain angle and cut out all the other buildings, you can just imagine what the building was like when it was just surrounded by fields. You know, when you do that, when you go somewhere and you just go, what was this like when all this other stuff was gone? And you stand in a certain way and go, okay, I get it. I can see how this felt. And we played that and it was just the four of us, me, me my brother, my dad, and my sister Gemma, who's also a piano player. Mm -hmm. And we had the keyboards al aligned like two V's. So it made a W shape with all the, the two, we had two keyboards each in the shape okay. of a W. And, and then we just worked out each other's songs. And like some songs, my brother would get up and play a guitar with one of my tracks, one track, everybody played on mine. I would do some strings on my sister's song where my brother played guitar. And we did this interchanging thing all, all, all the time. And somebody saw that show and said, that was fantastic. How did you come up with that show? And we 
because we're all writers and we're all accomplished players, I don't want to say it was easy because it's not. It's still challenging to put together a show. You've got to judge the pace of the show and get the songs right and get the things right and entertain people for an evening. But because we'd all been doing it for quite a long time, we could we knew the basics of how to put together the basic show and then build it. And we did two shows in one night. And uh, I do remember after that, somebody came up to me as some theatre promoter and he said, man, I'd love to promote that. I could put that on, he said, like 50 times all over the country. But I think Dad had another tour. I had something else I was doing. Adam was doing something. And, and it never happened, which was a bit of a shame, actually, because it's a sort of show that, you know, once you've done five or six and got it really slick, it would have been, you know, a really nice thing to have recorded and, and put out as a, as a film or something. But maybe one day we'll do it. Maybe one day we'll get, we'll get round to doing something like that. And I landed here You all are such accomplished players, but uh, you've all have your own things, and it's it's probably great for you and Adam because you you know you've probably been fighting a little bit your whole life to get out from under the shadow or or the the weight of the name Wakeman to some extent your whole career. It's a it's a tricky one because um, people often ask me whether it's a sort of hindrance or a massive help, and you can't you can't deny that a name like that helps people maybe you know prick their ears up or raise an eyebrow and go oh, oh what's that but it, it's a bit like when I joined yes you know I was always proud that when yes asked me to join and the straws for that instance phoned me up and asked me to play I didn't go courting the, the job they came to me because of that you know because I I'd put out a body of work and they'd worked with me in various forms before or knew about me before and liked what I did and and came to me and, and said we'd like you to do it and it's like okay that's terrific you know and I can see that having the Wakeman name is going to help you but that door would very, very quickly close if I got up on stage and couldn't play or I couldn't mm -hmm. do the job or I wasn't personable or able to work as part of a band. Sure. You know, so so the, the thing it does do, it may give people a little bit of a, oh, that's interesting. But then there's also the side of things that people would always expect. You know, people, ex like, we, like you said at the beginning, you imagined how it possibly could have been growing up or how people would imagine how it was growing up. And it was nothing like that. Mm -hmm. So people still, when I did the yes stuff, I, you know, I'd see the occasional comment under a YouTube video or something saying, oh, Oliver plays really well, doesn't he? He's like, yeah, well, of course he does. His dad taught him all the parts. And it was like, no, I, I sat down with all the yes CDs like any other musician who got the job would have done and sat there and worked everything out and wrote everything down and had a keyboard rig and had little bits of score written on bits of paper, sellotape to the front so I could remember it. You know, I did the same way as any other musician would work. But the... the so for me, it's it's always been difficult in 
you know some people are going to assume or imagine something has happened. All I can do is do it the way that I think is the right way to do it that makes me comfortable with how I'm doing the job. And then it doesn't matter. That's the important thing is I know that I, I've done it the right way. Um, so the biggest thing for me about the Waitman name, and I, I don't know whether Adam feels the same because we've sort of worked in slightly different worlds. He does an awful lot of session work <clears throat> and he's very, very good at it. And he's very in demand. I've always really wanted to write and perform and create. That's always been my route. I always wanted to put out, Matt, have a, a, a steady release of, of music that was changing experience of working with different artists and seeing how how that led so we have a, an overlap but then we also have areas that we, we both go to but i've always felt very strongly that the wakeman name stands for something in music in as so much as it's a high level of, of competence and you know i know dad's put a lot of records out people may be critical of the amount of records he's put out but when he puts he puts a record together it's good it's really good and so to me the, it's a case of I don't want to release anything that I think would would diminish what people would expect from a Wakeman product. Mm. Uh, and that's not to say whatever I do is like Dad's. It isn't. Some records are completely different. I write similarly to Dad. I play similarly to Dad. But then I write differently and, and play differently at times as well. But I want to make sure that the quality level of what I put out sits in somebody's collection who's a Wakeman fan proudly. And people just go... Oh yeah, it's all Rick, 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 all of it. Yeah, that's a good one. You know, that's that's what drives me. It's and that's what's important to me about the Waitman name. So it does have that side to it as well, which is both a you know blessing and a curse, really. Does yeah. that answer it? It's sort of a bit round the houses. That no, one no, it really, it really does. Because I mean, I could if you sit <laughs> and think about it for even a minute, you you can you can see the positives and the negatives that are involved. And it's interesting that you have taken that approach. That you you feel a certain. Um, responsibility i would say is a good word of putting out something that is that is of qualitative enough the you know to to warrant the name But you are also no stranger to playing on albums with other keyboard players because you and Clive Nolan did those two wonderful albums uh, that were uh, the Tales uh, Tales by Gaslight that were meant to be uh, a trilogy originally. I had um, I had Clive on the show last year. I think it was about episode nine, and oh, yeah. uh, we were just uh, starting to talk about the Tales by Gaslight box set. And um, so I wanted to get your uh your side of the story on on <laughs> how you uh you collaborated with clive how that whole thing got started i think we're pretty clear on how we started which was i i lived in in, in the west countries where i did a lot of my i talked about all the house bands and stuff i played with and um 
I used to work at a radio station. I used to go and do a radio show with a friend of mine who was um, owned a record shop, and he got he he got the audition to do the the rock show on the radio, and he used to invite me onto the show to go and do a little section on prog music, because he knew nothing about prog music and he knew that I knew it, and I was involved with the Classic Rock Society, and I knew a lot of the musicians, and so they'd all. You know, it was very difficult to get any radio play as a musician back in the 90s, you know. So the fact that there was this little window of opportunity that people could get their music heard and they, they used to send me records and I'd go on the radio and, and play play these records. And um, one day I remember Jim was the chap who did the show. He phoned me up and he said, I've got Mick Pointer, the original Marillion drummer, coming up mm-hmm. tonight to do an interview. And he said, I think it'd be, you know, it's, it's perfect for you to come along for that show as well and come and do the whole show rather than just do just a section on it and he said he's bringing up his cd for his new band arena you know are you going to come up and i thought yeah yeah i'll be i'll be there and i sort of dug through my vinyl and found my 12 inches of records that he was he was on uh and went up there and, and he scribbled on them for me <laughs> and we got chatting and he said you must come up and meet my keyboard player clive who plays in my band arena and i said oh yeah i'd love to that'd be terrific he said i'll I'll give, you know, I'll give Clive your number. And then um, I can't remember whether I phoned Clive or Clive phoned me. I think I might have phoned him up and just said, Mick said, we should chat. And and we just got chatting and he said, oh, why don't you come up one weekend? I was like, really? He said, yeah, come up and stay. Yeah. And so I just jumped in the car and went up there. And then we, we you know, for about a year, we just sort of hung out in the pub and I met all the other musicians that he worked with and they were just working on doing the live record, live going out live with the songs from Lion's Cage record that they did. And um, <laughs> I remember sitting in a pub with Clive and it was the day that he, he turned to me and he said, oh, I think we should do something. And um, we were wait- he was waiting for Steve Rothery to turn up from Marillion, who played a guitar solo on their record for yeah. them. And um, he was turning up. I can't remember why he was turning up. I think they were going to do a live show. and He was going to come up along and play. And um, we were waiting in the pub. And then I saw Steve Rothery come through the door of the bar at exactly the point that Kaylee came on the jukebox. And he walked <laughs> over and I just looked at him. I never met him before in my life. And I can't work out whether he liked this comment. And I just looked at him and said, did you put that on? <laughs> and he just looked at me like, who are you? And I've met him loads of times since. But I always remember that. And then that was the, that was the day that Clive said, oh, we should do something. And then we just started writing and just experimenting. And and it it really, it really wasn't a difficult process. I mean, it's, you know, I'm getting to work with another musician who plays, writes, is a lyricist as well, arrangements. You know, we both said we both bring the same stuff to the table but we can complement each other as well like Clive might have a song and I might do the arrangements around it or he would do some arrangements around my parts or sometimes I'd go I haven't got a chorus here and he'd go oh I've got something and and other songs that were just his that I've just had a solo to and we we just we always approached it into what did the song need what did the story we were trying to tell need what was what was it what were we trying to get to at the end so it was a it was a really pleasurable experience to to work on. It was it was purely that when we started the third album, there just wasn't the money available for it. And yeah, he, he went off and did more stuff with Arena, and I went off and put my own band together, and and then obviously went off and joined Yes and Straubs, and I think I toured out, went out and toured with Bob Catley, and and he was doing Arena and Pendragon, and we both were just really busy. And then before you realise, you know, nearly twenty years had gone by. 
it was it was quite strange but i still worked in the studio up where he lived so i saw him all the time it wasn't a case of we just never saw each other for 20 years we, you know, yeah. we still bumped into each other and said hi and how are you doing but it was a uh, yeah but no it was, it was great it was really nice actually catching up with him again when we were doing this before you know for the dark fables one It must have been nice for you guys to finally get um, that some of that music out that you'd put together for the third album that never materialized. It was really nice because when the record company said, have you got anything else? And I said to Clive, have you got anything? And he went, I don't know, I'll have a look. And I thought this third disc is going to be horrible because it's just going to be a few demos of the songs from the records with me singing or Clive singing and less other instruments on there. And it'll be interesting for the diehard, fans that really like to delve into a song but the average person is going to put it on once and go yeah it's interesting and put it back in the box and i i you know i know we all do that with records we put out demo versions we all do this but it just didn't feel it didn't feel quite right to me so i sort of said to clive yeah if you got anything and then when i went through my folder i actually realized i had like four or five pieces that i'd actually taken quite far and Clive had the same, you know, he had like some pieces that were really good. And I remember getting them from him and saying, that one needs a bit of lyrics on it, a bit of vocals on it. If you, and he went, you reckon? I said, yeah, yeah, I think that that's, that's the feel of the story is that where that one was going. Mm-hmm. And he went, all right, give me a bit of time. And he'd send me back a vocal. And then I would, you know, because he's doing lots of piano on it, I'd pick up the bass guitar and I'd play the bass on it. And then I'd do the string arrangement and I'd send it back and say, what do you think? And he was like, it's great. Yeah, brilliant. And then, you know, and then there was like the song that I wrote, which is Why Do You Hate Me? And, uh, you know, and I know Clive's got all these massive, great orchestral and choir, samp- choir samples. And I was like, can you put a Gregorian chant at the end of this song? I said, it really would ramp it up. And he's like, yeah, yeah, great. Send it across. I've got one of them. And before I knew it, this album was just working the same as the other ones that we'd done. And 
so it was lovely it was really nice and then we ended up with the third disc and then when we sent the whole thing to the record company the girl that i worked with at the record company sam she phoned me up i said you know so have you listened to the records she went yeah i said you like them because she'd never heard them before and she went yeah should i like the dark fables one best should we have that one in the office all the time playing it all and i was like well, that's good then it stands on its own which was which was nice which was you know sort of why it got its own release last year so it's right. very very nice music needs to be heard it's not it's no good set on the shelf is it yeah. it's, you know if you've written the, taking the time to write something it, it needs to be out there because someone else will get some pleasure from it so i'm always sort of that's why i really like doing these box sets because you're a great opportunity to get music out that maybe didn't have a home anywhere else yeah well you're right about answering other questions in your in your responses because I was going to ask you about the uh, no no it's great I was going to ask you about the the um, Dark Fables uh, CD getting its own release so that's good so from 2008 2011 was an incredible time for you you appeared on multiple albums and toured with legendary bands Yes and and the Straubs as you mentioned obviously the guys in Yes have been aware of you probably since your birth um was it was it a little strange to uh, to get that call and, and to join this band um well i'd worked with steve before because we'd worked on the, the three ages of magic album came out yeah. in 2001 so steve and i had quite a good relationship where we actually met on the abwh tour properly i mean they all knew me as a kid but they knew me as like little oliver that ran around and fell off his bicycle it wasn't really you know yeah. um so when i when we toured around with ABWH, my brother and I, I remember that Tony Levin was on bass and Tony Levin got very sick and they had to cancel some shows. And they went to the studio to do a single version of a track called I'm Alive, which was part of the quartet suite of music from ABWH. And so they rearranged it. And I remember sitting in the studio with Steve working out the guitar, and a little Steinberger guitar, a little blue box thing with a head, headless neck. And... Um, and I got talking to him and we'd started chatting and spending more and more time in the studio. And then on the tour, we would chat and talk. I remember sitting in the studio one day and actually looking across and Steve and I are chatting. Dad's nowhere to be seen. And Steve's son, Dylan, who was also on the tour, was over talking to Bill Bruford and getting, you know, drum lessons. And I sort of thought, this is weird, isn't it? The keyboard player's son is talking to the guitarist and the guitarist's son is talking to the drummer. It's a bit of a, bit of a weird <laughs> thing going on here. Yeah. And then many years later, um, I was hitchhiking across the UK and I, somebody gave me a train ticket to go, I thought I'll come and see my mum. So I was hitching down to see my mum and someone gave me a train ticket for part of the journey. And I got off the train and Steve was on the platform and I walked up and said, hello, Steve. I hadn't seen him for a few years. And he said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm going down to see my mum. And they lived about 45 minutes away. And he said, oh, well, I'm picking up my son. Why don't you jump in the car? I'll give you a lift part way. And we got talking. And then he said, oh, you must come over and, you know, here's my number. We'll have a chat at some point. Come over, have a coffee. Uh, and then that sort of went by. And then I released my first record, which was Heaven's Isle. And I was in, a, in, a, in the, the town where the, the record shop was. And they were selling my record. And they had a big poster of it in the window. And I was stood in front of it just um, waiting for somebody, I think. And then Steve walked up towards me. And I went, hello, Steve. And he went, oh, hi. What, what are you up to musically? And I sort of went, oh, moved to one side and pointed at a poster and said this. <laughs> and, and he sort of went, oh, really? I'd love a copy. And so I went and got him a copy. And he said, oh, I'll give you a call. I'll have a listen and give you a call. And think. And I thought, you know, he won't. He'll put it on his shelf and go, that's very nice. It's Oliver's record. But then about a week or two later, he phoned me up and he said, um, you got some time? I said, yeah, okay, yeah. And he said, right, track one. 
And and he, <laughs> you know, he said, love the sound of the flutes. Thought that was really nice. And the change that you did in the great, right? Track two, and he actually went through the whole album. He really listened to it. He and had thought, notes for you. <laughs> he had notes for me, and that, which was how we ended up developing it. You know, we then used to meet up regularly to talk about music, and that's how we got onto the Three Ages record. So we had a good working relationship anyway, and he had actually put me forward for working in Yes before Igor had joined. He'd suggested it to, to John at the time, but John had met Igor on a plane and was convinced that Igor was what they needed. And so I think when the opportunity came around again, Steve was, you know, actually, you know, let's give Oliver a try this time because he does play like his dad. He's, he's got, has that ability to, to sound like him as well. And so when I started working with them, it wasn't like I was working with Steve from when I was a five-year-old seeing Steve. It was very much like a continuation of the work that we'd done. Mm -hmm. I didn't really remember Chris or Alan at all, strangely enough, um, because they'd never really sort of been around much when dad was, because by the time, when they did uh, the first couple of albums, I was tiny. And then when they did Going for the One, dad had moved to Switzerland, so I didn't really see them. So I got to meet Chris properly, really, when I'm, um, when we uh, we met up at a pub, Chris, Steve, and I met up in a pub before the before the tour to, to chat. And Chris and I had the same phone. We just ended up talking about mobile phones for a while. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I like you. I can get on with you. This is this is great. And then when I met Alan, and Alan was you know very casual and very easygoing, and he was lovely as well. And so when I was working with them, it just was just a continuation of working with older people in a band and feel I had a, a job to do. Mm -hmm. I do think the, 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 the strangest thing probably was from their point of view, because I remember Chris saying to me, he said, it's really weird some nights. I said, why is that? He said, sometimes the way you hold yourself or the light hits your hair and you stand at a keyboard. He said, it's like I've gone back 30 years. He said, it's like I'm just looking across at your dad because I'm mm -hmm. hearing the same music. I'm seeing the same pose. I'm seeing the same mannerisms, which aren't deliberate they are you know i'm genetically for better or worse quite similar to my dad in in looks and stature and stuff so mm -hmm. um you know for somebody like him he was saying it's a bit strange you know that time <laughs> and then he would say and then we were talking in a in a, in a van one day and he said he said he said you know what he said 50 percent of the time he said you're so like your dad it's it's frightening he said you don't even realize it and he said and 50 percent of the time you're nothing like him at all and I thought that was great because you don't want to be perceived as just a, you know, carbon copy of, of sure. someone else. You want to be your own person. Mm -hmm. But 
so I think for me, it wasn't so strange working with them. It was stranger for them to work with with me. And I thought yeah. it was particularly weird for my mum. My mum came to see us when we played in Bristol, and I thought that must be a bit weird. You know, she, <laughs> you know, she's seeing her son play the same music yeah. that her husband at the time was playing in a band, and she remembers them all young. And um, there was a there was a great story I read off the internet where a man went to a Yes show, loved Yes. And took his wife to see the band in like 75, something like that, 74. And um, she hated it, but he loved it. And she went, and, she, and on the way back, he went, said, did you love it? And she went, oh, dreadful, dreadful, dreadful. And he went, oh, you don't get it. Anyway, he got to like his 50th or 60th birthday, something like that. And she decided to buy him tickets for the show that I was doing with Yes. And, um, and then on the way back from the show, he said, did you enjoy it? And she went, no, it's still dreadful. And he went, oh, and she said, God, you said, and haven't they got old, except for that keyboard player? He doesn't look like he's changed a bit. And that was, and I always thought that was such a great story. It is a great story. You weren't wearing a cape, were you? I wasn't. I've never done that. I'm not. No, it's uh, any similarities or sort of mannerisms that come across as similar to dad's. They're, they're purely unintentional. So I don't, I don't court the same sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. So no, I don't, I don't own a cape. <laughs> yeah. The 50, 50 thing makes sense. I mean, your, your, your genetic materials, half your father and half your mother. So you, yeah, that tracks. Yeah. So it does. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thing about Steve, how I think people would think, you know, if they don't know the story that you've just told about, you know, how you got together with Steve is they would just assume you knew Steve from hanging out with your dad, going to shows, and it's like, oh, I'll just call Uncle Steve to come over and we'll we'll jam. But yeah. it's it's very interesting that you know you were you were an adult, you were an accomplished musician, and and then you met this guy who who has such a, a history with your father. It's uh, it's very interesting. But you you and Steve and you and Gordon working together. Uh, you, you said you loved this uh, this idea of a you know stripped down if you could do a song acoustically. Uh, these are two of the best in the world at doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was one of the other things that was so great when I, when I finished working with Yes, Gordon was the first person that phoned me up, and he phoned me up and said, "I'm doing a go back a bit." Gordon did three fantastic progressive albums in the seventies with full band, two keyboard players, lovely stuff. And then he ended up, as a lot of musicians that we talked about earlier on in the 80s, they, their market was difficult to find because they didn't. the record companies weren't putting money behind the big projects anymore. And he became more of an acoustic guitar player than an electric player. Mm -hmm. And he became, I mean, he's virtuistic. He's phenomenal. But he also is very individualistic as well. You know, he doesn't play like anybody else in the same way that Steve Howe doesn't play like anybody else. And he ended up with this audience that he cultivated over the years. And... So when, I, when he phoned me up, he said, like, I'd really like to do a, a prog record. I haven't done one in 30 years, 40 years. And he said, um, would you play on my record? And I said, yeah, of course I would love to. And then he phoned me up the next day and said, um, I've changed my mind. And I thought, oh, that's a shame. And he said, no, no, I'd like us to, to work on something together. I think, it, you know, he said, I can't, with all the stuff you've done, he said, it just wouldn't feel right. You just coming on and just being a session player. Let's start from scratch and let's just build it together. And so he came over and we started writing and we wrote that album every way you can. We did bits over the internet. We sat down in a room together and played things. I would work on song ideas. He would work on song ideas individually. And then we, before we put the album out, we went out on tour and refined some of the music on stage, you know, so we worked every way we could on that project. And um, so I think 
that record was particularly rewarding because it, it was um it was a great opportunity to work with somebody that had a unique style again and i and i think that really helps you create something that doesn't just sound like someone else's record and i mm-hmm. and it, for me that isn't a, a criticism of any other band because somebody like various band i'm going to pick on a band only because i love them deep purple if you bought a deep purple record you buy another deep purple record there'll be songs you like maybe some songs you don't like but you're going to get a feel of that band their identity is in the way that they sound together from record to record to record Mm -hmm. the way that i've worked i've always been a bit almost chameleon like because i'm so interested in all different types of music it's like you know i'll do a rock opera with clive and then i'll do a full-on symphonic album with steve and then the album I did with Gordon is, is half rock prog tracks interdispersed with interludes of duets, um, which are the Ravens and the Lullabies. The Ravens being the rock songs, the Lullabies being the, the pieces. And that comes from the, the principle of having a piece of music with lyrics and a story and then a little interlude music to help cleanse the palate before you go on to the next piece of music. Uh, and so working with musicians like Steve and with, with Gordon, you, you create an identity for that record. And it's always, like I said at the beginning, it's always about the song. It's always about the feel and the theme of the record, which is always really important to me. And so I think, you know, working with those two musicians, I mean, you're not going to get a better opportunity in life to, to create something. And, and I'm particularly proud of those two records because I think they are, they are really strong records of, of the collective... Uh, experience knowledge ability of the players that are on it you know and i mean you know you sometimes hear a record by somebody you really love and they've guessed it on someone else's record you sort of get the impression that it might have been phoned in a bit or it's just put on there just because they're their name and stuff whereas these records there's none of that on there they are you know proper collaborations which is which was really important to me across just to put a bow on your time and yes and the straws were those were those times always meant to be temporary or uh, was it just that you needed uh, some time uh, to do your own writing and you needed to to leave those particular projects or what was that uh, all about the straws was because of time commitments with yes i couldn't commit to a couple of tours and by the time i'd substituted another keyboard player in two or three times it seemed unfair for me to pretend that it was my job when other people mm. were doing more more work with them than I was. I mean, I was very grateful for the Straubs. I got to do a record with them. I got to do a live record with them. I got to play some wonderful music. I got to tour 
I think we toured, we did some shows in Europe. We did the UK and I toured around Canada, which was fantastic with them. And we had a great time and I got on really well with them. Um, again, similar to, yes, they, they were people that were around when I was absolutely tiny. And Chaz, the bass player, was my godfather. I hadn't seen him for years. So that was quite a, a weird thing, but that was, that was really nice. Uh, the yes thing really came down to, I would have stayed. I was quite happy to stay. I think it was just that when Trevor Horn got involved with the, with the production of the album, the record really went into two halves, which was the music that I'd been working on with the band and the working we'd worked on, and then Trevor's track. And then as Trevor got more of a hold on that track, he then wanted to expand it and expand it and do more and more. And he has always been really comfortable working with Jeff. And I think he knew that he could get what he wanted from Jeff mm-hmm. um, easily. And, and so it ended up becoming a situation where they sort of made a decision that they would, would rather have Trevor do the record. And um, they took that route. So I ended up going my, my own way, which uh, it was interesting. You know, it wasn't a particularly pleasant time at that moment, but up until that point, it had been great. And we'd been very happy. Um, and yeah, I did actually get, you know, a lot of calls from Chris afterwards saying, I don't think we should have done this and you know, all that, that, but it's all, history really now it's you know i i managed to do the 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 from a page record which showed my time in yes in a Mm. recorded studio sense and you know the response that i've had from people to those songs and the live from leon record has helped validate mine and benoit's time in the band because we weren't then just seen as just a recording a, a touring entity people mm-hmm. could actually see that we had a creative uh, vibe going in in studio and a lot of people have been very complimentary about the music that we'd done together and sort of couldn't believe that it would sit on a shelf. And, and that to me is, is reward because it's, you know, as an artist, you don't write songs for them to sit on a shelf. You want them to be heard. And something like a, a yes track with Steve playing slide guitar, acoustic guitars, electric guitars, and Chris playing acoustic bass. And then his Rickenbacker uh, and me playing Moogs, pianos, grand pianos, as a yes track it shouldn't sit on the shelf that sort of stuff shouldn't be hidden away so i was so pleased when it when we managed to do the um do the agreement to put it out it was lovely yeah. and yes fans seem to feel the same because i still get comments you know two years now since it's been out if not a bit more and i still get comments from people almost daily saying how much it, they like it which is which is lovely yeah now your history with uh, the recorded music of yes goes back even further you you worked on a track with Steve um, for the 35th anniversary box, the, the song Australia. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was only a little part I did actually. He ended up doing a live performance in his studio of Australia and he had two versions of it. One, which the first half was really good. And the second half was really good of the other one. And he wanted somebody in a studio to help do the cuts and put all the bits together. And I did that for him. So I got a little engineering credit on that, which was, which was quite nice. Yeah. yeah, I think it was only on the three CD version, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's funny. That's uh, ironically, that was the first time I ever got to see Yes was on that tour was uh, I just for whatever reason, I was never able to to coordinate my schedule with the tour. So I got to not only see the 35th anniversary tour, I was, I was working for a hockey team at the time. Yeah, I, pre- I presented your father with a with a hockey jersey with his name on it uh, oh, wow. from the Fl- Florida Panthers. Um, I went in that I stopped in my office before the show and. I heard some people saying my name and I'm like, what's going on? And they called me over and said, we have these jerseys. We want to give the band. We don't know who they are. We don't know which one's which. Would you come down and, and point out who is who? 
<laughs> so I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And uh, I went downstairs and uh, before the show, uh, we presented them with their jerseys. And I said, well, that's John, that's uh, Alan and, you know, so forth. And I gave, I handed Rick his and I remember he, he seemed very delighted with the jersey and he kept saying it's, it's effing brilliant. <laughs> you know, like, it, was, it was really funny. I got my picture taken with John and Alan, and uh, and then I went and saw the show, and it was great. So uh, it's, it's funny. I, so I always have an affinity for that 35th anniversary box because, yeah. uh, because of that show. I'm sure you got along great with the Straubs because I've, I've had Dave on the show, and Dave seems like a delightful guy. Yeah, he's, he's a phenomenal songwriter, and he's when when I when he asked me to join. He said, we want to get back to some of that silliness, you know, that prog stuff. And, and, and they, they, I mean, they had some very talented keyboard players in their band, but as with all, all bands and all keyboard players, you, you know, a bit like we talked again about the tree, everybody has different experiences and different knowledges and the keyboard players that they had were different types of keyboard player to the keyboard player that I was. And so they hadn't been unable to play a lot of the stuff from the early days, which dad had done like the hangman and the papist and where is this dream of your youth and, and stuff like that. And so he, they wanted to put me in the band and, and, and do those sort of songs as well. And I, you know, a bit like the yes thing, I had the ability to pick up all the styles of the keyboard players and do stuff. Mm. And we had a great time. Um, and it was, you know, lovely to play a track like Where Is This Dream of Your Youth? If people don't know it, it's like a 10-minute keyboard solo in the middle of a great track with a corking guitar riff. Lovely, lovely track to play. Ah, it was great fun. I mean, you know, playing that every night, 10-minute keyboard solo, kicking keyboards around and jumping from thing to thing. You know, it's, it's, it, it was wonderful fun. And I, I and the fans were so, so welcoming as well. And so, you know, they it's the same as a fan base for most fans, you know, the fan base know everything and you, you have, you sort of feel you've got to do it justice and turn up and, and do a good job and just add to the history of the band. You know, it, it, it's a, it's sort of like a gift to be given, to be able to go and play with people like that and be a part of the history of, of classic bands. Uh, and so you want to make sure that the, the stuff that you add to it is really you know, is top. You don't want you don't want to you don't want to do something that you sort of think is subpar or it's just a it's just a passing job. It's not that you put your heart and soul into it. A bit like we're talking with the Wakeman brand. You join these things. You want you want people to go away and sort of go, God, that was good. I wasn't expecting it to be like that. that was really, I really enjoyed myself, and that was that was really important to me. And so the Straubs was the same. And, and Dave's a great songwriter. He's a, I mean, he writes when we did the album Dancing to the Devil's Beat, he wrote so much great music for that. And we wrote a co-wrote a track together on one of those, which was really nice as well. But listening to how he he wrote songs and the stories he came with was amazing. He wrote this piece of music, uh, the, the Pro Patria Suite, which was, we wrote a hymn together at the end. But I remember him struggling. He was He said, it's he said, I don't get it. He said, it's like a love song. It's about a soldier that leaves his girl behind and how he's talking about how he loves her. And, and he said, it just doesn't work. And I, we were doing shows while we were writing. And he said, it doesn't work, does not work. And we went through this quite a few times. And then he came to me, he said, I think I've got it. I said, oh yeah. He said, it's not, he, he, it was in his head, but he couldn't work out what the story was. He said, it's actually not a story about a, a, a guy leaving his girl behind. It's about the love a soldier has for his other comrades, that sort of battle-hardened, 
I won't leave you behind on the, you know, field of battle type of love, that sort of different, it's a completely different type of thing. You know, it's mm -hmm. that sort of, you know, I've got your back, you've got my back. Our, our lives are intertwined because of this horrible battle and situation that we're in. He said, it's about that. It's about that. It's not about the love between a man and a woman. It's about that camaraderie that people have when they're put in high stressful, dangerous situations where you are, your life is completely reliant. And he said, and then the song just came. We just had the, the whole, we knew musically what it needed to do. And the hymn at the end was because one of them died. And we, we knew exactly what we we're going to do. But listening to him craft this song and, and not give in until he found the right answer and not just put it out Mm -hmm. and just fill the space on the record i took i learned a lot from that i learned a lot from that sort of get the story right because it will only help the music don't just settle for oh it'll just it, that'll do you know yeah. that'll do is never is never right The heart was ever hallowed ground with thousands lying buried in the fields of honor, whichever country's flag may fly. Yeah, I love the way his mind works because it, it's it, he, it's more like a writer's mind than a musician's mind. Yeah, and and he's he's very, um, very connected to the story of his song in in his songs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so two thousand four, you you worked on that Australia track with Steve Howe. Two thousand five, you put out Mother's Ruin, which you mentioned Deep Purple before, and I hear some Deep Purple and John Lord influence in that album. Uh, was that something that was going through your mind at the time, or do you want to put put out a rocking album? I wanted to put out a rocking album because everything up to that point had been like big symphonic stuff. I'd done a solo piano album. I'd done the two albums with Clive that were you know, very big. And and I, I did a New Age record as well, and I'd worked with a Celtic singer. And I thought, I haven't actually just put a band together. And I wanted to put a band together because I had to go out, I wanted to go out and play music from my career. But obviously those bands, those albums had so many different musicians on that I needed to create a core band that could go out and, and play all these different styles of music. And so I put my band together and, and then I sort of thought, I've got to write for these people. They're so good. There's, there's a record in here for just these people. And I wanted to do something that was a collective band experience, that sort of everybody firing and the song being the, the key and so it wasn't a a record concept record as such but it was lots and lots of stories again you know everything that i'd learned from all these different people 
and so each song is in individual but i really wanted to do that and also i wanted that feel of just a rock band rocking out and going out and playing because a lot of the shows that i've done the music that i've done was again was was a bit chameleon was so different and it was a very difficult show if you sort of think oh i'm trying to do something from that record along with something from that record and something from that record mm-hmm. it would end up sounding slightly disjointed so having a good rock band that could we could hinge the show around and then put in these occasional other pieces worked really well and and i love doing that and then we did a live a live record and dvd I still work with Paul Manzi, the singer, and um, the, the bass player, uh, Paul Brown, uh, ended up getting tinnitus and having to stop playing, and Dave mm-hmm. Wagstaff, the drummer, is retired now. But Paul Manzi still works with me. He plays on, he sings on the Ravens records and the live records, and mm-hmm. he's toured with me, and he sang on you know, a track on Dark Fables. And David Mark Pierce, the guitarist, has played on many sessions that I've done with me, and I've played on his band's new record, and he played on some of the Dark Fable stuff and we're working on something else. You know, they are friends for life, those two. They just will, we will work, continue to work together in some form. Yeah, over the Mother's, years. Mother's Ruin, the, the title track is uh, is one of my favorite songs off that album. And I'm glad that you guys included it in the From a Stage uh, disc on this new collaborations with uh, with Paul on vocals. Yeah, it's a really stripped down. The, the Mother's Ruin version has got, oh, I don't think it's quite got bells and whistles on it, but it's got every other instrument and everything you could throw at it. It's completely over the top. And then we started to do it acoustically because we just couldn't do it live like that. There's too much stuff going on. And so we took it back again, like we talked about earlier on, taking things back to just a piano or an acoustic guitar. Does it work as a song like that? And when I stripped it right back, which is how I wrote it originally, it, it reminded me of actually just how strong it was. Almost, almost. I mean, obviously it's an ecological song and I, I'd like to point out that it's not an ecological song jumping on the bandwagon. This was a song I wrote 20 years ago. Yeah. And it was, it was always something that was, you know, you know, I'm, I'm the same as most people. I still have to live a life, but I do have a conscience about what we do to the planet. And so when I stripped it back to an acoustic thing, the emotion of the song really came out to me. And it's like, actually, this really works this way. And so getting Gordon to play some lovely little guitar lines to it and pulsing with the emotion he's got and just the piano, it, it came out beautifully and it's it's one of those songs that really doesn't 
it demands emotion from the piano. It doesn't demand virtuosity. It, it didn't, mm -hmm. you know, if I completely overplayed, it would kill the song. It's one of those things where sometimes you just have to go, you've just got to play a bit differently now. It's the song that's the important thing here, not showing off. Yeah. Because <laughs> the, the message is strong, you know? Look at the feelings we reach When dolphins wash up on the beach we're drowning her I watch as the forests fall down All this life pushed to the ground Suffocating her A breath of life expel like a flame A planet's dead so who takes the blame Can we really keep her the same? And can we live with the shame? Mother, help us, we're out of control. Mother, help us to relinquish our hope. Mother, help us, was it your soul is out? Mother, I need you now. Mother, I need you now. Yeah, I really like that. Ver I think I like that version better than the Mother's Ruin um, studio track. But it's this whole from a stage CD. You mentioned it came from a multi-track recording from a, a Christmas concert that you and Gordon uh, performed with Paul. And it doesn't sound like three guys on the stage. It sounds like more. It sounds like there's times when I think there's a bass. There's times when I think there's uh, strings there. And that's that's you, I presume. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've always got a lot of left-hand stuff going on. And sure. I had a little set of three or four keyboards. And and Gordon, as well, can make his guitar sound phenomenal. You know, his finger-picking style is incredible. You know, he can he can be playing the bass parts amazingly well. And uh, so a lot of it for me was just, you know, and obviously you've got the advantage with the keyboards, you've got pedals, so you can hit a low bass note and then jump to another keyboard and, and do other stuff as well and, and keep that root area mm -hmm. and you do get used to um the nicest way of saying it is you get used to filling the frequency gap that the so you're you're in a different area where the band where the, the other person is playing so, you know when you're bad it's quite easy you know you've got the bass drum and the, the snare hit a certain place and that works with the bass guitar and distorted chords sit around the middle with organ chords and then your lead stuff sounds in the top end of your ear and you hear the, the the sound of the band so when you're playing acoustically you have to work very hard to not get in each other's way. So you, you know, you, your hands as a pianist might be further apart because the guitar player is playing around the middle of the of the of the, of the frequency range, you know, the octaves, and you're trying to make it sure it fills. And it's and obviously the variety of sounds you can get from a keyboard. It means that we do have the um, ability to jump between something that sounds orchestral and string based to a piano piece to maybe something that's a bit more tinkly, like there's a track uh, Elizabethan Pirates on there, which is quite a fun piece. And that's a sort of synth sound and strummed guitar. So I think that's the advantage of, of maybe my ability to play the way I play and, and Gordon's virtuosity is that you are able to push yourself a little bit more and fill those spaces and make acoustic pieces, you know, musically interesting, which is, which is challenging. Yeah. But great fun when you get it right and you pull a show together. It's lovely. It's such a lovely feeling. Yeah, you really feel um, really feel like you've sort of 
achieved something. Yeah. Tell me about the bonus tracks on Three Ages of Magic and Ravens and Lullabies. Where did they where did they come from? Where did they originate? Why were these things that were written at the time that didn't make the cut? Uh, the Three Ages of Magic, yes, there's the Fairy Ring and Hit and Myth, which was mm -hmm. just a play on the, the words Hit and Miss. And it was that, that both pieces were on the record for a long time. And then I think it was one of the evenings that Steve and I were sitting down playing the music through. And we just, something jarred when we got to those tracks musically compared to the other pieces that were coming from the record. They didn't feel Something about them just didn't feel right, but I really liked them as pieces. And I really sort of thought, that's oh, a real shame we didn't do those on the record, but I still to this day understand why they weren't there. There was just something about them that didn't fit with the flow of the album. Steve would always say to me, and I still have this in my music files on my computer, which I still do with every record. He said, when you're working out your track listing for the record, he said, still think of it as side A and side B of the vinyl. Think about how you would start vinyl, how you would end that first side, how you would start the second side and how you would end the second side. He said that way you end up with a strong flow of your music across a record. Mm -hmm. um, and wherever we put these songs, it didn't help that flow. And so, of course, when we came to do the, the, the remaster, it was an opportunity to put those, those back in because they were written at the time and they were part of the journey of writing that record. They just didn't sit comfortably with the maybe with the other instruments we were using as well they did they felt more synthy rather than organically um based and the other track on there which was the storyteller was um the track that that was uh, originally called dreamweaver and it, it was just the, the demo version was quite interesting it had the bass player before steve got involved it was the track i'd wrote and the bass player had done some guitar on it and i'd added a different moog solo and we'd gone a different way with it but it was an interesting enough version of the song to to, to put in there yeah. so that the three ages tracks were quite fun um and the ravens and lullabies extra tracks well we talked about at the beginning there was two discs originally for the very first thousand i think were limited editions yeah and there was a version of preludium the barks piece that gordon and i had done we'd done a um studio version of his track roots with paul manzi vocalizing over it and the full band playing on it and we did a version of the forgotten king which was a track from the three ages of magic album and so we pulled those three off the this sort of bonus disc and put those onto the record um but the the really unusual piece on there is probably the wedding approaches which was when i did the tales by gaslight box set and the dark fables track there was a track which was a beautiful a song sung by a girl called charlotte dickerson sings it beautifully uh, and I knew Dave Mark Pierce had played on all of Dark Fables, but I knew that this song was so delicate. It needed that acoustic guitar, that virtuistic classical touch. And of course, Gordon came to my head. So I phoned him up and said, would you, would you play on it? And he was you know, more than happy to play on it. And um, he sent me these guitar parts and they were so lovely. But once we'd put all the choirs and the vocals and all the other bits and pieces on it, they just sort of came through as little top lines. And then when I was coming up with the stuff from Ravens and Lullabies, I somehow I had the file up on my computer and I had everything else that muted and I just had the acoustic guitar and the piano and I just sort of played it. And I didn't miss anything. I didn't miss that there wasn't the orchestra. I didn't miss that there wasn't the vocals. I didn't sort of sit there and go, oh, this is the bit where the vocal line comes in. The piano and the guitars did what it always did with Gordon and I, which is we just intertwined with each other. And I thought, 
that deserves to be a sound a track on its own but it didn't it should it wouldn't have worked sitting on dark fables like that mm. but actually on ravens and lullabies it was a really nice piece to almost bookend that project if that makes sense because gordon and i don't work together anymore because gordon obviously he, he's he's older now he he got um he got quite sick for a while and then had stopped touring and he's got his health back and he doesn't play live as much, just does a few things now. And then he still writes beautifully. And again, I've disappeared and gone loads of other things and he, he does his things. But, you know, unlike a lot of musical history stuff, I don't fall out with people. And I think it's really nice to show that we were still friends and we still worked together, even, even though we hadn't done lots of records and lots of tours together, you know, another 10 years go down the line. And we can still put a track together and put it on a record. still talk to each other every couple of weeks we still give each other a phone call and have a chat and that's and i think that's that's nice i'm, I'm afraid i don't have any sort of i fell out with that musician and we hate each other type stories I, <laughs> I i generally like working with musicians i find them nice people and and i love the creativity of it so th that's why that bonus track was quite important to me as well yeah it's called collaborations comes out april 11th you can get it uh pre-order it at the burning shed website and the first 250 box sets include a fourth art print of the box set cover, which you have signed. Are those, I'm assuming those are already gone by now? I have no idea. I do <laughs> not know. I, re I genuinely don't know. Um, I must find out, really. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's the art print of the cover. I mean, the artwork, I, I love good artwork for records. Records have to have good artwork that matches the, the project. Yeah. And I've been fortunate over my years to work with such wonderful artists like Rodney Matthews and Roger Dean and Anne Sudworth. I love Anne Sudworth's work. But then I found lots of artwork by other artists that aren't as well known that just is just amazing. The front cover for collaborations, just a perfect cover. If you any of your listeners go and find the cover. It's just a beautiful, beautiful piece of art. And and I always when I wrote to all the artists, I said like, I'd really like to put art prints in the box set as well. And they were all very happy to do that. So I thought the front cover needs to be in there as well. So I, I, I'm going to put that in for those, like I said, those first 250 and sign those and number those. Um, so, yeah, I don't know whether they're all gone. Worth it. Try and grab one. Yeah, tremendous. All right. One more thing that I wanted to ask you about um, from your past is this album, the Prague Aid uh, oh, wow. single yes. that you did all around the world, helping out for the, the tsunami disaster. Um, yeah. And I believe this is you on the end, but I'm not sure because it's such a small picture. <laughs> and, uh, uh, it is probably, me, yes. And, yes, they probably long, just kind of... Long jacket, yeah. So this isn't like Band-Aid. You weren't all in the same 
hall for this. No, uh, no, it was it was um, Rob Reed, I think, organized it all yes. at the time. And um, I sort of missed a trick with that one because he asked me to do a solo on it. And I'd spent I'd done so many sessions that 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 couple of months playing Moog over everything. And I sort of thought, oh, I'll do something different. I think I played Rhodes piano on it or something. And I sort of thought, should have done a solo and a Moog really. It's what people were expecting from me. But it was um it was just nice to be involved. You know, it's musicians are a are, are a generous bunch. We you sort of, you know, we we do things like that quite a lot, not just I mean loads of musicians. And there's loads of other things that you find musicians doing all over the place, donating things to charities. Yeah. If we're lucky enough to be able to do something that can help somebody else out, generally you'll find most musicians will do it. I'm not unique like that. And as you can see from the front cover of that, how many people have crammed together to to yeah. to, to do that? You know. Yeah. So it's it's I've done I've done a few different charity things. I did one recently for a hospital, which was which was very nice. And I've done some music for a hospice in the past. And yeah, it's just you know some people have really really difficult times, and if we as musicians can do anything that can that, that can help, then we generally do. Yeah, the uh, the thing about it is that people will want to give regardless because of the charity, but it's always it's always nice when the song is actually a good song. And that's what stands out to me about all around the world is it's a really well written song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rob's stuff generally is very good. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned you're still a music fan. Is there anything uh, what, what is your favorite musical style today? Do you have a favorite? Do you know what my son's always nagging me to listen to new stuff? I've got a sixteen-year-old son, Arthur, and he, he he listens to he's into computer game music at the moment. Heavily loves computer game music, so he's always trying to let me play. So he's he's just starting to get in a bit of swing and jazz actually, which is quite interesting. Hmm. Um, so he's he's sort of finding his own path. He's always trying to play me play me stuff from that, but I still I, I keep saying to him, I say I'm getting older now. And there's still the artists that I love. There's still music that they've done that I haven't heard. So I sort of feel like I want to ex- keep exploring their careers first before I end up, you know, taking on more, more stuff to learn. But um, what do I listen to? What do I listen to the other day? I'm still a big Pink Floyd fan. Still listen to Pink <laughs> Floyd whenever I, whenever I can. I still yeah. enjoy the songs that my mum used to play me. I, you know, I was trying to, I sat down with my son the other day. What, what we do actually, my son, whenever my son and myself are just on my, our own in a car going somewhere, I will make him listen to things. And I recently played him um, White Russian and Incommunicado from, oh. from Marillion. And I'll find a couple of tracks from a band and just play it to him and then move on to something else and see if he goes back and starts to listen to them. And I did that with Dream Theatre and he listens to it, Dream Theatre now and, but yeah, it's it's quite I like most music. I'm a bit eclectic. I but I do generally enjoy most things. I'm just trying to think, God, I'm just trying to think what have I listened to recently? I don't get a lot of time. That's the only thing with doing music, is it you know, you can't do music while you're doing music. You can't, you know, if you're if you're doing another job, you can put music on in the background. It's difficult to do that when you're doing music because it gets yeah. in the way. So sure um but I you know, I like not what, what do I listen to at the moment? What do I, what did I listen to? Is, what did I listen to in the car the other day that I put on? Omadorn by Mike Oldfield. I think I still lots of Mike Oldfield. I don't know. And I enjoyed okay. that. Uh, oh, and Obscured by Clouds. I hadn't listened to that for years and I'd almost <laughs> forgotten about it. And then finding it was like a finding a new Floyd album, you know? And I think that's, <laughs> I think that's one of the advantages that young people have now is that you can find a band like Pink Floyd and find 15 albums. 
you know it's not like yeah. finding a new artist now and you've got to wait a year for their next record it must have been terrible in the 70s <laughs> waiting for your favorite band to put out another record it must have been really difficult you know yeah. like, oh, where's the next one come you only done three <laughs> and now you know kids now they can go i can find 12 floyd albums in a row you know yeah well the great thing back then is sometimes they put out two albums in a year now it's you put out an album and then three years might go by before the next one yeah that's true that's true yeah I, I mean i've got i haven't put out a new record since dark fables last year but i've got i've got my i think i must have i think i've got four stacked up and it's just i keep getting excited by each one so i keep doing a little bit more on each one and the record my management company keeps saying to me you've got to pick one and finish it <laughs> and put it out and then pick that one and then do that one and so they're being a bit harsher with me now so you've got to do that one now and then we'll put that one out then and we'll put this one out. So I'm having to feel like I have my hands slapped, which is stop playing and just enjoying yourself and do some work and finish it off. Yeah, that was a premonition of my final question was that after collaborations, what's next for Oliver Wakeman? What come, you know, what's the next project? What's the next tour? You know, what do you got coming up? I want to try and do a couple of acoustic shows with Paul Manzi. We we keep in touch all the time. We've talked about doing a couple of piano shows again. We used to do that a while ago. Um, so we'd like to do that. Because I think that's the right way for to get back out and play after the lockdowns. Just the two of us, you know, you know, you haven't got to put a huge thing together. The two of us can get together and go out and play a few shows and test the water and see what the audiences are like. Recording-wise, I'm doing a, a Celtic rock album called Anamkara, which I've been wanting to do for years and never finished that one off. So I'm going to work on that one. And then I'm working on a big other big project, which hopefully we can announce at some point soon, which is going to be a, uh, something I've been working on for a long time. Uh, and then there's um, another project I'm working on with a guitarist friend of mine. And I've just had this idea of putting another band together. I just, as I said, I've just got all these things and I just have to, I have to pick one and finish it. So, but they're all sort of in various stages of trying to get the deals together. So it'll be whichever deal comes through together first, we'll get the priority. Um, but I, I, and I also want to do another box set once this one's out. There's still a collection of albums of mine, like you talked about Mother's Ruin and the live album and my very first album that never come out. So I'd like to maybe do another box set that was just my, you know, solo and band cruise. Maybe a box set that was that charted the the, the the journey that I took to create my band would be a quite a good fun one to do as well. So yeah, there's, there's plenty of stuff to do. And my, my dad always used to say to me when I was a kid, he said, there's never enough hours in the day. And I never understood what he meant. And boy, do I understand it now as I've got older. Yeah. It just it really isn't enough time to do everything that I want to do. So, yeah, sure. it's, like, it's like chipping at a mountain, you know, so much to do. And you've just got to keep keep chipping away at it. Yeah. So people can find you at oliverwakeman.co.uk. And uh, are you on social media at all? Oh yeah, I've done. Uh, Twitter is generally where I, I can be found. Uh, that's at, at Oliver Waitman, um, and there's Facebook as well, which is just Oliver Waitman. The YouTube channel is is quite a good place to go, actually, um, which is again Oliver Waitman. And I'm starting to put more and more stuff up there. And there's the single mm -hmm. Money Factoring from the Ravens album that's just gone up, yeah. um, and there's a couple more going up from the live album over the next few weeks, which will be quite good fun. And there's a couple of video music videos on there from stuff from Dark Fables um, and Jabberwocky. And there's some piano versions of it's a lovely piano version of um, words on a page from the, the from a page record, mm. uh, the yes tracks There's piano versions of that is if, if somebody is interested in what I do, go to the YouTube channel, you can probably enjoy yourself for a couple of hours of, of music there and get a feel for all the different projects. It's quite a good place to start. 
and my son's badgered me into joining Instagram, but I'm dreadful at keeping up to date with Instagram as well. But I, I, he keeps he keeps saying to me, "Got to do more on that, Dad. Got to do more on that." And it's like, okay, okay. But, yeah, um, he's, he's yeah, not gotten you on TikTok though. No, no, I've, <laughs> I've, I've I haven't got to that level yet. I just there's so many, there's so yes. many. I just, I just I'm still a bit old school. I'm afraid I'm I'm very you know I'm very technological. And I'm very digitally savvy, and I definitely enjoy it, and I see the benefits of it all. But you know, he keeps saying to me, "You've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to go to this social media. You've got to do that." It's like, actually, do you know what I want to do? What? What? Dad? What do you want to do? I want to sit and play the piano and write something. That's that's what I want to do, rather than tell people what I'm writing. I'd rather yeah. sit down and do it. You know, so not enough hours in the day. Not enough. Not hours enough in hours the in the day. <laughs> Quite right too. Oliver Wakeman, uh, the box set is called Collaborations. Uh, Burning Shed website, uh, web store has it. You can pre-order it now. It comes out in early April. Thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed uh, learning about this uh, Collaborations uh, box set as well as uh, your career. It's been uh, fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much. No, absolute pleasure. Well, thank you for inviting me on. It's been, it's been lovely. Oh, I think we could have just talked about your CD collection, actually. We could have just done that instead. <laughs> Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media, at Mike's Records on Twitter, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, you can support the show through our Patreon at patreon.com slash michaelsrecordcollection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening.